Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. A fun story we covered this week, ugly Christmas sweaters have started to take cues from their autumn cousin, the sexy Halloween costume, in their absurdity. Santa Claus is no longer that jolly old fat man. Rather, he's getting naughtier, pooping down chimneys and telling you about that big package he might have for you. There are now hundreds of retailers stocking up on ugly sweaters with varying degrees of raunchiness. For more on this, we spoke to Mara Judkis. She's a reporter from the Washington Post. The ugly holiday sweater party kind of started out as this sweet and very wholesome thing. At the beginning of the 2000s, people would buy ugly sweaters, you know, the kind that like your aunt or your elementary school teacher would have worn with nutcrackers and polar bears and teddy bears and things like that on them. They'd buy them from thrift stores, but then people started to want newer and newer sweaters, ones that actually fit or weren't someone's old sweater from a used clothing store. And so companies started to meet that demand. And as they did, they started incorporating memes and humor into the sweaters. And that humor has gotten raunchier and raunchier. And it's pretty crass at this point, but also can be very funny. (laughs) It's become really a big thing. Yeah, I I actually have a company Christmas party I have to go to and they're saying, you know, wear your ugly Christmas sweater. So I didn't have one readily available. So I was Googling around for it. And some of these more raunchier ones with Santa peeing in the snow or saying, I have a big package for you, something like that. I was like, I can't really take that to a company party. There might be some people with those, but I can't take that there. And yeah, so it's kind of hard to find something that's kind of in between, especially now that these are popping up a lot more. Give us some examples of what we're looking at now. A lot of them are kind of based on, I would say, like frat boy humor. Like there's Santa and he's saying, I do it for the hose is one. (laughs) There's another one that's like, it's Santa and he's ice skating and the tracks of his ice skating spell out send nudes. And then there's another one that's Santa pooping down a chimney. Yeah. <laughs> there are antlers, you know, reindeer with antlers, but the sweater says horny. There's like some elves throwing money at a stripper who's dancing on the North Pole. They're really super crass. Definitely not like work appropriate, I would say. And there's some that get even uh, a little worse. I think Walmart had to apologize one for Santa Claus. It said, let it snow. And then he's like doing lines of cocaine. They have one that's the exact same thing, but with Rudolph. They have a gingerbread man that says, let's get baked, and he's holding a bong. I saw from the article, too, there's one that says it's beginning to look a lot like Epstein didn't kill himself sweaters. And that's like one of the top sellers this year. That one is really big because that's been such a big meme on Twitter and on social media. And so, you know, it has this kind of like cross stitch sort of look to it. It's actually a sweatshirt, not a sweater, but it has that kind of like classic, sweet cross stitch design, but it's actually nooses. And it's like one of their top sellers this year. (laughs) Tell us about the companies, though, that are making these because they're making millions and millions of dollars off of these things. And they're starting... You know, they're starting, they're, they're planning these things year round. I noticed in the article, they have to send these away to China by springtime so they can get them all printed up in time. 
It's kind of a difficult business in terms of timing because they're already working on next year's sweaters. In terms of like memes and what's popular now, you have to have a really long view to be able to predict right now during this Christmas what will still be popular next Christmas because they have to order so many sweaters in advance, especially the ones that are knit because they take a long time to produce. Um, so, you know, there are so many companies now that are doing this. There are some that are wholesalers that sell to big department stores or Walmart or Target. And then there are some that are just e-retailers. Tipsy Elves is a really big one. They've kind of come out ahead. They were on Shark Tank and they are really known for their pretty over-the-top sweaters. They make other stuff too, like full suits that have like really whimsical prints and like snowman dresses for women. But the sweaters are really what they are known for. This would be an interesting story already just because companies are trending towards this. But really, people are buying these in mass. You quoted somebody as saying, you know, this is kind of like the new Halloween almost. People get into the costume so much during the Halloween time, but they get into it just as much for Christmas time with these sweaters. And they associate, I think you even said Christmas is kind of like St. Patrick's Day. You know, people use these opportunities to party and have fun with it. It's become a real dress-up holiday in the way that Halloween is. People who do these ugly sweater parties, a lot of them make it a tradition, and they do it every year. And so then people feel like they can't wear the same sweater to the same party twice, which means that they're buying a new sweater every year, which is ultimately great for these companies. And so, you know, it's also become a real drinking holiday, too. And that's kind of why I likened it to St. Patrick's Day, because when you think of events like SantaCon, especially oh, yeah. in New York, which is known for getting, like, completely rowdy and everyone is totally hammered and, like, vomiting on the street. You know, it's like people go all out for Christmas now and they have to be dressed the part, it seems. Mara Judkis, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Another retailer trying to make a comeback this year after filing for bankruptcy and closing more than 800 stores. Toys R Us is back with a new format and more surveillance. They have two new stores in Texas and New Jersey and that new format lets kids play with the toys before they buy. But what really caught people's attention were all the new cameras embedded in the ceiling. For more on this story and how retailers are monitoring your every move, we spoke to Luis Matsakis, staff writer at Wired. So when I was a kid, Toys R Us was this really big box store where there were huge aisles and there were lots of toys from the bottom of the ground to the ceiling. So now these two new stores are kind of a new version of retail. So it's like this interactive marketing experience where there's maybe not as much stock as there used to be, but there's like place where, like you said, you can play with Legos, you can shoot Nerf guns. And in the ceiling, there are all these cameras, which we can talk about exactly what they're doing. You had a really good line about how it is, is Toys R Us stores are a prime example of the new reality of in real life shopping. They're trying to mimic all the data and everything that you can get when you shop online. Obviously, if you go to a page and you linger on a product or you click on a product and you're reading through it online, they can tell how long you're spending there, how much time you're really taking considering buying the object. In a retail store, you really don't have that. So all these new camera systems that they're installing at these two new Toys R Us stores are aimed at that to try and figure out what you're doing in the store. So there are these cameras in the ceiling that are installed by a company called Retail Next. And what they do is they count the amount of people who come in and out of the store and they monitor how long they linger in front of each product. They're not super down to the exact item that you're holding. They're not quite that accurate but they can see how long were you hanging out in front of Lego? How long were you hanging out in front of the Nerf display? You know, and they can compare those statistics to see which products people are really drawn to the most, exactly the same way that on a web page you might 
linger on one toy versus another. It's really part of this evolution where these retail companies who have physical stores are trying to mimic the same kind of tracking that has long been possible on the Internet. What do they say about monitoring the kids? What Retail Next says is that they don't collect any data on children under 13, or at least they try not to. And they don't do that out of the goodness of their heart. They do that because one of the only national privacy laws that we have in the U.S., the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, actually protects children under 13 from having their data collected unless there is parental consent. And there are two different ways that they exclude children. The first way with their more rudimentary sensors is that they exclude anyone under four feet tall, which is not great because when I was 10 years old, I was taller than four feet. Right. But their newer sensors actually use machine learning, and they've looked at millions of pictures of kids and adults, and they are trained to separate what a kid looks like from what an adult looks like. How well does that technology work? We don't know. But the good news is that these cameras inside the Toys R Us stores are intentionally designed to blur faces, and it's pretty low-resolution footage here. But there are other stores that are using cameras at eye level that are actually trying to assess your age, your gender, and those are not blurring your face. So I think that Toys R Us is kind of the tip of the iceberg of this new future of retail where there's cameras everywhere and they're mimicking the same kind of tracking that is kind of ubiquitous when you shop on a site like Amazon or other e-commerce sites. Beyond the cameras and beyond trying to track you that way, they really don't need a lot of that stuff. They're tracking you through Wi-Fi and Bluetooth using your cell phones. So if you enter a store and you have your phone on that mode, looking for new Wi-Fi networks, they can actually detect your phone and they can pick up all sorts of information about you. So they can see maybe when you came to the store last, they might actually be able to identify you based on the unique number associated with your phone, not your phone number, but the unique device number. So there's all sorts of information they're collecting. And consumers say maybe that's a good thing because you might get pushed a digital coupon while you're literally walking around in the store. But I think there are also some privacy risks. For example, they can see how long you linger in each aisle. If you're lingering in the aisle for diapers, maybe they might infer that you're pregnant and show you a pregnancy coupon. You know, there are all sorts of kind of troubling implications of that kind of really detailed tracking. But what the companies say is, well, we're tracking you like this online. So why is it different when we're tracking you like that in person? Louise Matsakis, staff writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Finally, for this week, an interesting story about the largest private security company in the world, G4S. They have a problem with guns. They can't seem to keep track of all the guns they supply to their security guards. An investigation by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel shows that more than 600 guns have been reported lost or stolen, and they sometimes end up being used in violent crimes and even murders. For more on this investigation, we spoke to Gina Barton. She's the investigative reporter from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. We got a tip which started this investigation, and we had to do a lot of legwork to track it down because, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, firearms records and gun records in the U.S. are almost all secret. So we had to go to 450 different police departments and ask them for reports of guns reported missing by G4S. And then once we knew the serial numbers of the guns that were missing, we could go back and ask where those guns had been found. And that's how we were able to determine that they were found in all sorts of crazy and dangerous places. One of them, a man held it to a woman's head while he threatened to rape her. Another one, a group of teenagers used it to pistol whip a woman delivering pizza, and then they stole her car. And probably the most heartbreaking case we found was one of the G4S guns was used to fatally shoot two men. Tell us a little bit more about G4S specifically. I mean, they employ security guards that are armed. How big is this company? Just give us a little primer on them. 
G4S is the largest private security company in the world. And in the U.S., they're part of the big three with Allied and Securitas. And what they do is they provide security at a lot of places that police used to provide security. So they're at courthouses and in jails and transporting prisoners, but they're also at businesses that you or I might go to every day, like grocery stores, banks, that sort of thing. So they are literally everywhere. And in the U.S., they have 5,700 armed guards, and all of these guards are given guns on loan by the company when they go to work. And then after their shifts, they bring those guns home rather than securing them in an armory or at the place that they're actually guarding. So how many guns are we speaking of? How many has the company lost? And I know that some of them, they are recovered, but how many guns on average are they losing? On average, G4S is losing 59 guns every year. So during the span of time that we studied, that was 640 guns. Oh, wow. (laughs) I mean, that is a ton. And for a security company, they're providing security for other people and they're losing guns that are falling in the hands of the wrong type of people. That's just pretty sad to hear. So you mentioned a little bit about the process that the security guards go through and how they should be storing their guns. What is the official process that G4S follows with this? Officially, they give every armed guard a cable lock. And that's one of those locks where you put the cable through the barrel of the gun and it comes out the other side so that you can't actually fire the gun. And then you're also supposed to use that cable to attach it to something. So if it's in your house, you're supposed to attach it to a shelf, a piece of heavy furniture, something like that. If you are coming to or from work in a state that doesn't allow you to actually have your gun in the holster while you're driving, you're supposed to use that cable lock to secure it to part of the car, either under the seat or in the trunk. What does G4S say in response to the amount of guns that have gone missing? Everybody kind of shifts the blame a little bit. They throw it on the security guards for maybe not following protocol. But, you know, it's not just the guards. There's been a bunch of executives and regional managers, things like that, that say we get calls a couple times a month about a gun that we never knew went missing. There are a couple of issues here, and my colleague Brett Murphy and I sat down for three hours with G4S executives to talk about this issue. And number one, they said the biggest problem was guards not following the policy. They told us if guards would just follow the policy, lock up their guns, not leave them unsecured in their cars, they wouldn't have this problem. So the responsibility that the executives took was they said, we are not doing as good a job as we need to communicating to our employees how important it is to secure these weapons. And then the second thing that they said is, since we did that interview with the former manager who talked about guns disappearing a couple of times a year and some other police reports we found about managers coming in, doing an audit, finding numerous guns unaccounted for, they said a couple of things. First, they said that a lot of these guns that are unaccounted for on paper their own employees and managers find them pretty quickly. Maybe somebody didn't record it quickly, but the gun was actually there in the field office. Or maybe the gun was actually with an employee and they knew where it was, but they just couldn't lay eyes on it right at that moment. So they said that. And then they also told us about several upgrades that they're working on. They did one in 2012 where they stopped using paper to keep track of their guns. 
and started using computers. And then now they said they're working on another computer upgrade where the corporate office will actually be made aware of when people quit to make sure that they can check up and ensure that the gun's been returned. Losing one gun and not finding it, I would imagine, just raises so many alarms. You said on average they're losing maybe about 59 a year. I think the number was 64 for this year. They do have a federal firearms license. Tell us a little bit about that because they've had this license for 40 years and it gives them a lot of benefits. But you would think something like that would get revoked once something gets lost and then connected to a crime. And this has happened more than once. So how does the government respond to this also? So the G4S executive said even one missing gun is too many. So they fully acknowledge that, you know, if they even lose one gun, that's bad and that they were really upset that, you know, one of their guns had been used in this double homicide. So I feel like I need to say that. ATF is another story. We got all of these records from ATF going all the way back 40 years to when they were given the firearms license. And they've had this argument the whole time about should they have one? Because this is a license that is usually used for gun dealers, gun stores. And now it's sometimes being given to security companies. So that's one issue. The second issue is that in many of the reports that we read, the ATF inspectors were saying, this is a problem. All these guns being missing is a problem. But they can only revoke a license for a violation of a particular rule. And they can only revoke the license if they go to the company and they say, hey, you have a problem. And the company is willfully not trying to fix the problem. So the fact that the company has continued to try to fix the problem seems to be enough to allow it to keep the license. Interesting. Can you share a story of one of the guns that you guys were able to track? I mean, I know you guys were able to get tabs on a lot of them. There was a lot of different things. I think there was a kid who took his father's gun and it ended up at, in his school locker was one of the examples. There was one example where one of the guns was used in a murder and nobody made the connection until a reporter noticed that the serial numbers weren't matching. And then that's how they were able to connect it. Share one of these stories with us, please. And to me, that was the most outrageous example that we found was this double homicide that happened in 2009. So the guard put the gun in a bag, put the bag in a closet when he went on vacation over the holidays in 2009, so 10 years ago. And while he was gone, somebody cut a screen door and came in and stole the gun. And within a few days, that gun was in the possession of these three guys who burst through a fence and into the backyard of a home, killed one guy with a knife in the backyard, and then went into a shed out in the back that was kind of like a man cave where a couple of other guys in their 20s were playing video games and fatally shot both of them. So the police reports are very interesting because they sort of put together that one of the suspects knew the daughter of the guard whose gun was stolen, but then somebody wrote down the serial number wrong, so they never did put it together that it was a G4S gun that was used in this homicide. And as you can imagine, the company was surprised and unhappy about this. The mother of one of the men who was murdered, Tony Black, his mother was really upset that neither the company nor the guard who didn't secure the gun was held accountable for her son's murder. Gina Barton, investigative reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow the Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of the Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.